Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to an episode featuring Carrie Winterstein. We talk about a bunch of stuff, including high elevation learning. You're going to enjoy all of this, plus some talk about nonprofits, why theater is important, and uh, being raised in a big Catholic family. Plus, Tucker and I have a very interesting uh, discussion that has nothing to do with uh, painting that you're going to enjoy. All of this and more on this episode of JJ Meets World. And while you're at it, why not hit up patreon.com slash JJ Meets World. One, two, three, four. Changing Gordon, sort of like that Indiana Jones in that he's always sniffing out his next adventure. Yes, he is! He's always interviewing guests so he can have them on his show and they can talk about pop culture, arts, and leisure. JJ has his flag unfurled and he likes his french fries curled and he's fun and then he twirls as he goes to meet the world. He will march into the rain even if his ankle sprain. Take a peek inside his brain. This podcast is called JJ Meets World. Before we started recording this, we put our cell phones on silent to make sure that we didn't have any ringy dingies that take place during this. What's the most inappropriate place your cell phone has ever rang? I've I've been pretty good about my, I guess, my cell phone hygiene when it mm-hmm. comes to making sure when people can hear my phone. I think it happened once or twice in a movie, which is obviously a faux pas. It's never happened at a funeral or a wedding that I can recall. But also, I I usually just, the way I roll is it's on silent and there's no vibrate. Wow, yeah, good that's, for you. That's usually how I roll. And- I, I think it's funny because I remember the days of like flip phones and the T9 uh, keypad and how much we were paying for ringtones. And we loved like you just sign ringtones for different people and you were excited when someone's ringtone played. But now it's just too much noise. Too much noise, huh? So we were burying my dad's body at his funeral. Like it was I, being he was being lowered into the earth. It was a it was an urn. We were graveside. That's right. Okay. And I've got one arm around my grandmother and one arm around my sister. And in my breast pocket, you start hearing and my friend Toby was calling because uh because he couldn't remember what church the funeral was at. And it was the Winnie the Pooh theme that was playing. And I remember that being a moment where I said, I got to be better about this. I have got to be better. It took your dad's funeral. It took my dad's funeral. (laughs) And Winnie the Pooh. Here's the thing. It wouldn't. It would have been one thing if my cell phone had just rang. It's another thing. It's just one more reason for my dad to go, ugh. Yeah. For that. I think, you know, from time to time, it's forgivable for a human being to every once in a while. I forgot you know, or something happened on accident, a button got pressed, that's fine. But when someone is in a place where their phone rings and it shouldn't be, and then they answer and start having a conversation, mm-hmm. those are the people that are sociopaths that need to be removed from our society. Yeah, when people get mad at me for asking them to stop texting during a movie and they go, shut up, asshole, that's what I think. Excuse <laughs> me, are you serious? And the, the, just, vanity that some people have that they think they're so important that their text message is so important and sometimes i see people pull up facebook right 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 what do you need to know that's so important you got to interrupt this movie dude right no it's uh it's not cool man i i am we are part of that digital generation 
Um, although we are sort of, we are somewhat separate even from newer millennials, I guess. We're all millennials technically, I think. Um, if you graduated after the year 2000, I think in some way that kind of makes you one. But we grew up without social media. And the first half of our of our adolescence had no internet, like mm -hmm. or or it was very rare, like it 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 wasn't easy to get to. It was using Netscape Navigator in the right. library right. at school, where you had to sign a pledge saying you would not right look up dirty websites. Yeah, so we were early adopters of the technology, but we're late to the game in going. Wow, I need to figure out how to regulate this in my life because it's too much. So hence the. It's silent all the time. Like people can get a hold of me so easily via all the different messaging platforms on the internet or via email or just the fact that I look at my phone like a million times a day. I'll see if I missed a call from you or got a text from you or something like that. I don't need you to like or whoever is messaging me to go, your attention right now, whatever you're doing, your attention right now, because that is annoying. Well, we we expect too much of people today, right. right? We expect them to be contactable 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we don't even allow people the courtesy of people send me a message at midnight and say, hey, I know it's late, but blah, blah, blah. And I think you're not sorry. If you were sorry, you would just wait until tomorrow morning to send that message. You know I'm asleep. So what's the point? What is honestly the point? So I guess what I'm getting at here is maybe it's time that we start downgrading. Maybe that's the next thing. You know how people suddenly started saying, oh, you know, I'm part of this generation. I'm going to get an old beat-up pickup truck or I'm going to start growing my own vegetables. <laughs> I want the next generation of that to be, I got a flip phone instead of a regular phone. But flip phones are friggin' expensive. Yeah, but you could also go too far with that and be like, yeah, I built an aqueduct. It's running into my house right now. It's hey, all pillars. They still use some of the aqueducts from Roman times. Right. So you think that's a bad idea? I'll take my municipal plumbing. Really? Right. Mm, interesting. Because let me tell you something about municipal plumbing. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles do not actually <laughs> live in the sewers of New York. I've always wondered, in fact, what the sewers of New York look like. Are they giant, just underground rivers like we've been made to believe from I just movies like Ghostbusters that, 2? I just assume there are like hangout places all, all over the place. <laughs> Ch chairs and broken down TV. You can hang with the, the toitles. Or a ba like what in the second movie they're in an abandoned subway right yeah station. they they find an old wing of the subway that got closed off but still has power and is fucking awesome yeah and what are the odds that they would close it down and leave one of the cars there yeah you guys are really you weren't very realistic Ninja Turtles yeah come on at least let the real estate market represent what it truly <laughs> is and the fact that April had this antique store below her place but and she's supposed to be running the it antique store it used to be store? her dad's antique store and then right. she kept the shop open but i don't think anyone's going there anymore bullshit she kept that shop open that's what she says she's we like, never see her work in it she keeps it around that's like I think she, there's a line about that some of the effect of uh, uh i guess it's silly to keep something around just because you miss your father and so i think she has it maybe it's not open open you're right they're not making regular business she's too busy with her news reporting you know, getting were, scoops. Were they saying that at one point, like we're gonna just throw away all of Splinter's stuff because he's gone? I would. It would make sense though. Like if you grew up in this building in New York City, and you're like, well, I just have this building now. It's easier than f going out and finding an apartment somewhere in the village. That you just keep it. Yeah, you just keep it. I agree. But do you know how much money she's losing by not renting that out to a cherry berry? Uh, where well, this was 1989, JJ. So I don't think either of us are equipped to a Baskin Robbins. Do the math here, man. 
a Baskin Robbins, so much money. We don't even know what the neighborhood was like. So much money. It hadn't gentrified yet. That's for damn sure. Yeah, that's why they needed a Baskin Robbins. Yeah. <laughs> she needed to be like leading the charge on that. Uh, there was a really amazing play I saw in Chicago called Superior Donuts. Mm. One of my all-time favorite plays. And I saw it when Michael McKeon was in it, who you might know from things like Spinal Tap yep. or Best in Show. And recently, CBS bought the rights to it and turned it into a sitcom with Judd Hirsch, and it completely loses the entire message. <laughs> uh, so if you watch the show, or I, it might be canceled at this point, Superior Donuts, I would highly recommend you see the play and then go like, oh, God, I've been wasting hours of my time watching that piece of crap with Judd Hirsch in it. So really what I'm getting at here, you guys, is like, when will they finally privatize the U.S. post office? I thought you were going to say see some theater. Oh, no, no. I would never. <laughs> I would never say something like that. Never be that bold. Uh, but interestingly enough, that is a good segue into our guest today. Carrie Winterstein uh, is the executive director of Theater B and a founding member of Theater B and David Winterstein's better half. Easily his better half. Easily. Yeah. Um, we delve into a lot of stuff with Carrie, not only about theater, but about running a nonprofit and what it's like to have to ask a bunch of people for money all the time. Hey, and speaking of asking for money, uh, we're going to ask you for money right now. So we run this podcast, we put out two episodes a week, JJ meets world. If you're listening to this into a coffee shop, call us right away because they are illegally using this as part of the ambiance of their business. Uh, but we put out each episode for free, and we ask that if you enjoy this, to give us something. It's like going to a concert and having them pass the hat around. We want a digital pass the hat, and you go and give us money at Patreon is where, where you're going to end up. Patreon.com forward slash JJ Meets World. Now, don't go there and give it to JJ's Meets because that is entirely different, and apparently they've been reaping the benefit off of our podcast but Patreon's a great way where you can set up two types of donation. You can donate once, or you can set up an ongoing donation. So you can give us $20 lump sum right now if that's what you can spare, or you can say, I'm going to give them $2 a month, and if I stop listening to this, I can stop it. That's fine. We will take that gamble because we think we're going to entice you to stay with us. Uh, over 70 hours of unique content has already been created, and we only have more stuff coming up next. So thank you to everyone who's donated to our Patreon and if you're brand new and thinking about it, just do it right now. Just do it. Do it for us. Do it. Imagine it's old yeller and Tucker is yeller. Just look away. Just, just, I got it. I got to put him out of his misery. Patreon.com slash JJ Meets World. JJ Meets World. Carrie Winterstein, before we even started this podcast, you're talking about... The fact that you wear a lot of hats. Yes. Figuratively or in real life, you wear a lot of hats. I do, both. Yeah? Yes. I uh, Figuratively, I wear a lot of hats um, because I run an arts organization, and I'm also an actor, and I'm also a mother, and I'm, I don't know. So some days it's like, oh, today I will pretend to be an accountant. And that kind of stuff is really scary. You know how in like old cartoons they'd show like 
two characters in a fight and it would just be a dust cloud like surrounding them and yep. just sort of arms and legs. Well, sometimes it, like if you see Carrie, that's kind of what it looks like because she's doing <laughs> 10 things at the same time. And it's just like a blur of like, what am I, is that a, that's a person in the I middle am. of all of that. I am trying to do too many things at once and trying not to be a bitch about it because that's, <laughs> that's the thing. I'm also trying to be nice to people. <laughs> I've watched Carrie um, enter a restaurant and then the rest of her party be seated while she almost goes from table to table talking to people because you know just about everybody in town. I do. Uh, do you even bother going to places like Rustica anymore? Oh, or is it well, just I'm like, there oh every boy. Friday you know, JJ, five. that's pretty rich for you to say that. Because <laughs> I, I can tell you of many times going with JJ somewhere and suddenly the phone rings. Hey, how's it going? Oh, I know this waiter. Oh, hey, yeah, didn't I saw you at mm-hmm. WeFest last year? I was thinking year. the same thing. Even as he was asking me, I thought, wait I'm a not second. Shade. Are the two, no, just the two of us probably, if we had to go anywhere with a, a, a time constraint on it, oh, we'd be, be yeah, no, oh. it's total failure. I can't go to things like business after hours anymore because I never make it past the first 15 booths. Right, yeah. No, <laughs> There's just I, no point in it. Oh, my kids figured out not to go to the grocery store with me when they were about four. Mm, <laughs> they were yeah. like, no, there is no, I don't want to go to the grocery store. I'm just going to stand in, in the produce aisle while you like do a receiving line. The worst for me was <laughs> when I was in the uh, Bell State Bank ads. <laughs> Because I'd have a lot of people I didn't even know coming up and asking questions and saying hello and wanting me to meet their granddaughter. Mm-hmm. And it drove Jill bonkers. Yeah. She got to the point where she's like, I don't want to go grocery shopping with you. She was like, oh, you're going to go fill up for gas? I'll see you in an hour and a half. Yeah. And I, mean, I didn't. I never wanted to be rude and be like, "Hey, man, I'm busy right now." Because you're not that oh, big no. time, right? No, like, right. It exactly. seems like you have to be a big enough of a celebrity to go like, listen. Like I'm, I'm too big to talk to you right now. But you weren't. You were just like, oh yeah, no, that would that seems like it would be a real asshole move to right. do. No, and part of it is I actually genuinely enjoy randomly seeing people that I know when I don't expect to see them in places right. where that's not the purpose of me being there. This is just this is the beautiful mix of being in a relatively small community. Is that when you know a lot of people and then you randomly get to see them, that's about relationships. And to me, that's that's key for all the hats I wear. <laughs> would, would I be correct in saying that you also have a genuine interest in people's lives? I and do. so that is something that greatly affects it as well because you you're not just saying, hey, how's it going? I haven't seen you since the last time we did blank. But you're asking questions about kids and about you know, politics, and you're asking them like how their house is going, and yes. I saw you put up new tomato cages. Yes, yes, yes. It is that kind of stuff. And David always, my husband always just kind of um, remarks about the fact that I, it's my superpower that I know everybody's name, and then yeah. <laughs> and then I will often, I will often jump in and say, well, not just their names. I know the names of their spouses, children, yeah. dogs, cats. You know where their lake place is. Carrie, I just, Carrie is I definitely like maternal. Talk- for certain, but Carrie's my theater B mom. So like anytime like a big life event happens with me, and I'm like, well, I gotta let theater B know. So I just call Carrie, and like just I'm like Carrie's. And then the I one. let everybody else know. Yeah, she does the knows yes. how to how to spread just it around in a good way. In a good way. Okay, do you want me to? Yeah, do you want me to make this sound good, Tucker? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I can do that. <laughs> yeah. So like one so day she's your PR person. One day it's gonna like be it. like Carrie. Carrie, I didn't mean to do it. He just, he wouldn't stop talking. I had to kill him. I had to kill him. And Carrie would be like, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> She's like the wolf from yeah. Pulp Fiction. Like the wolf. Yeah. Comes over and cleans so, up the body. Yeah. 
Uh, Do you have any sheets? <laughs> so, Carrie, let's get to know you a little bit better. Sure. What's What's your story? Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? Oh, my gosh. Um, okay, so that's a long time ago, which is uh, funny. Um, I grew up in St. Paul in the Twin Cities. I am the youngest of many. Uh, a big Catholic family in St. Paul. Uh, we grew up kind of in the Midway area near St. Thomas College. And um, part of my story that is significant, I think, is that um, not only am I the youngest of this family, but uh, I am now number seven in in the line of kids, but I am uh, the last of a family that had been ten and so, Whoa. yeah, my parents lost three daughters. Um, they lost their second daughter, uh, their second child, a daughter, to crib death when she was um, just, you know, weeks, months old. And, um, and then they had lots more kids. And then I was a twin, and we were premature. And um, here's a fun side story that you'll appreciate, JJ. Um, we were born during the first time that the Minnesota Twins were ever in the World Series. And so, okay, so this is, this is 1965. Um, so my mother is in labor at the hospital, and my dad is talking to news outlets about the fact that he's having twins during the Minnesota <laughs> Twins World Series. So he gets tickets to the game, and my mom gets, you know, labor. And delivery, and she was like, Seems "There fair. is no freaking justice in this world." Um, but we were preemie and small, and my twin was not well, and it took us uh, a, a number of years to sort of figure out all the stuff that was going on with her. Um, and then there was another right after us. A year later, my mom took had another uh, daughter who died during childbirth, um, and so she had these ten kids. And in in our family lore, I am the one who lived. Right? Mm. There's this sort of, out of those last three kids that were problematic because my mother was getting older, um, I survived. And I, in fact, my twin and I were born on my mother's birthday, October 13th, 1965. It was her 38th birthday. And, um, and later, as we began to figure out what was going on with her, um, my parents actually could not um, afford to take care of all of her medical costs. And so she became a ward of the state. And I think that was really formative for everybody else in my family. I mean, I was too young to really understand what was going on. Um, and she lived until we were six. And I have strong memories of visiting her and uh, a memory that I attribute to the last time that I saw her, although now I can't really be sure that that's what it was. But, like, I remember the jacket she was wearing and things like that. Um, but in later life, I began to realize how formative that was for my siblings to have lost siblings at young ages, and particularly my older sisters. There are four boys and three girls. And so um, my sister tells the story of the morning that we were born, being at the breakfast table, all of the kids, and the boys um, kind of giving shit to the fact that it was two more girls who had been <laughs> born, and now it was going to be an even four and four. And they were like, ah, oh, you know, we were hoping for another boy. And my sisters were like, no, this is justice. It should be girls. Um, but my two older sisters really were... Um, our guardians, right? They they were the ones who were taking care of us as we in our infancy at home, um, because they were already eleven and twelve year olds, uh, and so um, that attachment I think uh, had a lot, had a re really big impact on. It still does on my relationship with Jamie. She was 
she was my guardian. Right. Uh, and we're still really attached. And um, I think it was really hard on my sister, Julie, who ended up losing the daughter. She, you know, the daughter, the, the sister she was attached to. So um, that's a big far, part of our family story is, uh, you know, Carrie being sort of the princess child. Like it, it, it just heightens all of the youngest <laughs> child and dramatic. And, you know, all of that stuff is just completely heightened also by the fact that I lost my sibling. I'm the the oldest. I mean, there's only two in our family, but I'm the oldest. And I did plenty of the child raising in our household, only being, gosh, I'm ele- uh, what, the year's 12 months. I've got to do some math here. <laughs> yeah. Only 23 months older than my sister is. Oh, yeah. No, still, can you imagine if you were like 16? You could so, have just said yeah. two years. Chrissy would kill me, and I know that she listens. She goes, we are not two years. We are one year and 11 months. Um, but I think that there is something, you know, in in, in my family, it was a, a little mixture of neglect is why I ah, ended up stepping up a little bit. Yeah, no. I, I... But having older siblings that help raise the younger ones, I notice a drastic difference in personality types with people who uh, have yeah. siblings who are also caregivers. Yeah. And and certainly that is now documented in in science as well, the ways in which brain development changes and the way in which social development is incredibly influenced by siblings or not siblings and birth order and uh you know years of space between and that kind of thing. And in our family that's, you know, it definitely bears out my um yeah, so my oldest brother was 16 when I was born. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, Several of my siblings are retired, and they're all grandparents. Right. Um, you know, um, so I was a big whoops baby. Yeah. When my little brother was born, I was twelve or thirteen years mm-hmm. old, um, and so yeah, I didn't. I certainly didn't raise him. Like my mom was raising him, but Brienne and I were around a lot and spent a lot of time, especially as an infant, babysitting and changing diapers and getting to interact with him that way. And it definitely, I said this to him plenty of times when we would have life talks, like, you know, none of us siblings had that with each other, but we all have it with him. Yeah. Like, we all remember him as an infant. I remember him being brought into the room and me being pumped that I was the only one who thought he was going to be a boy and being right. <laughs> and uh, in all of those moments, right? Like, I don't remember my, I, I have a, a vague impression of a memory of visiting Brianna when she was in the hospital. She's only two years younger than me. Um, two years and nine days. Right, but you um, probably have photos that sort of right. actually inform that yeah, memory. It's, it's, it's like, an, is it really a memory it's or is it a picture? It's an old enough memory that it's mixed in with other things that I know are not real. Yeah, yeah. So um, I grew up then in that uh, in a neighborhood that was also had a lot of other big Catholic families in it, and I went to Catholic school. Um, my grad school was my first non-Catholic education, so I went to a um, Catholic grade school, all girls Catholic high school, Jesuit college. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah. Do you? Um... So the streetcars in St. Paul were long gone they by the time. They were gone. They you, were not around at that time. Do you remember people speaking nostalgically about the streetcars and No, 
not really. Um, I've, they do now. They really do now. Yeah, but I, I remember I, when I listen to older people talk about them, they're like, we were glad to get rid of them when the time came to get rid of them. <laughs> but nowadays, you would think that they had stolen the heart out of St. Paul. I think it's partly, you know, at the time when they went away, people were wanting to be able to drive their cars around, and not everyone had cars. So that was that was fine. Now that you cannot find a place to park, <laughs> people are like, God darn it, couldn't we just have the streetcars back? And then we might not have this parking problem. JJ and I were actually kind of talking about this in the intro to today's episode where – uh, you know, we're millennials, yeah. Um, but we're also <clears throat> at the front end of the millennial. I looked it up today. Millennials are by the by Pew Research say it's if you were born between the years of 1981 and 1996, you ah. are a millennial. And they haven't come up with the official term for after that. So they're kind of calling okay. people born after 96 post millennial or something else like that. Right. They right. don't have a they don't have an actual name yet cuz Interesting. cuz their generation is just turning 21 right now. So Solomon's right. generation. Right. And um but so our generation even though we were early adopters of digital technology, we were raised when the internet came around, we also remember a time before it very vividly and we remember the the <laughs> digital like infancy. We didn't have social media at all until we were out of high school. No. Like none of those things, you know, the cell phones we had were you the charge lasted an hour and you had to pay <laughs> per text message character. Sure. Right. And so we're actually experiencing now a lot of people our age finding ways to push back on the technology that we've so readily adopted. Right. Yeah. And so it's kind of like that. Like at some point you begin to appreciate something you didn't appreciate in the past. And you 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 long for it again. It must That's be like good. the same with, with the streetcars. Yeah, well, it's it's. I think it's with a lot of things. You know, I we find that uh, we push back on certain things or try to hang on to certain aspects of of heritage. I think. Uh, you know, the example for me that's clearest is food, right? Like, um, I'm a, now a Norwegian by marriage, right? I didn't grow up as a <laughs> as a Norwegian Lutheran, but um, I very quickly adopted my husband's food traditions because they're <laughs> fabulous. Um, and the way that it takes time to make food and that a lot of special foods take more than two hands to make, so you, you have to do it in groups um, and that kind of thing. That's a great example to me of, of a kind of a heritage thing that we don't want to let go of and we don't want to lose. And, um, you know, certainly for David and I, we want our kids to pass on those traditions. Um, but it would have been really easy to just be a part of the, I'm a Gen Xer, I'm the first year of Gen X, so I remember baby boomers and all of that and what Gen X-Men. And there's a part of me that's like, no, 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 I get how you want to hang on to certain aspects of your of your past or your family's past, um, either because it's really yummy or because it's quaint or because it uh, takes you out of your daily life for a little bit. And you find that that's like, oh, that's actually mentally healthy to go do this other thing. Um, David and I do a lot of uh, putting up of preserves in the fall. Oh, cool. It's not something I grew up doing. My mother saw it completely as labor. She was totally in that, you know, Betty Crocker generation where the more could come out of a can or frozen was like, woohoo, that's you're a successful cook, right? And there's 
David coming uh, from a completely different standpoint where he's like, no, 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 my dad made bread every Saturday enough for the week, right? Uh, and I just found that was fascinating. And I thought, yeah, well, his parents had four kids so they could manage bread. My mother had seven kids and she's like, bread, f- bread, I'm not making <laughs> bread, you know, thank God for wonder. Um, and so, you know, we do, we kind of try to hang on to certain things that are manageable and other things we go, no, technology is great. We're going right. to embrace some of the things that at least give us a little bit of convenience. Right. But finding the way to like say, no, I'm not going to answer my phone in this period of right. time. Or right. I don't have to answer email all day long. Those kinds of things. Ooh, finding the boundaries. Tricky. So uh, I've been re-watching Mad Men recently, <laughs> which your friend Rich Summer, yeah. uh, who was on episode five with your husband David Winterstein. Yes. But I, there's a there's a scene, a very famous scene from the first season called The Wheel, where mm-hmm. he's he's pitching a new a uh, new pitch for the the for Kodak. For Kodak. Kodak has got a new slide wheel. Right. And yes. he he has this line and uh, you know, I don't necessarily think the line as he says it is true exactly, but the way he means it is interesting. He's talking about an old colleague talking to him about nostalgia. He says nostalgia, it's delicate but potent. Teddy told me that in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. And I'm like, well, you know, the things that I'm nostalgic for, um, they're not necessarily wounds. You know, they're old memories and stuff that were happy. And then I thought, well, maybe the wound is the fact that they're gone now, that they are only memories. And that's why I find certain things beautiful from my past because mm-hmm. it is gone. You know, the wound is that it has been is cleft from me except for how I remember it. What do you guys think of that? I think that there's a lot of truth there. I think that when you're dealing with nostalgia, you want to f- you're, you're looking to feel something, right? You're looking yeah. to regain a feeling. And I think some t- it's no wonder that so many things circle around food with nostalgia. Yeah. Because food is something that makes you feel good and it makes you feel warm and you associate it with good things. It well, literally it, keeps you alive. It, it does. Is, it is uh, certainly the human universal. Um, it's a huge part of hospitality in, in mm-hmm. all cultures. And, you know, it's 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 so often shared. And, and there's even, I think, for us, a cultural norm that is expected to be shared. We think of someone eating alone as being a sad thing, even if they're they might be choosing to be. Um, and so, I think that's part of it too: is that no- notion of food and nostalgia being connected to how we are connected right. to one another. Um, People use it to show loving and and, and caring. Yeah. Um, you know, we all probably at one point had a friend in our youth who, when you'd go over to their house their mom or dad would like suddenly just make a bunch of food for him and all their friends or have mm-hmm. a bunch just in the fridge and go, just take whatever you want. Because to them, it was very important to be able to give you just that. Yeah. Even what now it, we talk yeah. about that, you know, that there is love in everything that's homemade, mm-hmm. right? You can taste the love in there. You can taste the love in those waffles. You can taste the love in that apple butter. Well, love <laughs> tastes like bacon. What happens when someone <laughs> dies? Right. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm going to make a big batch of spaghetti and I'll bring it over. And right. No need to return the Tupperware. Food is there for comforting and, um, yeah, and talk about nostalgia, you know, that sense of, of remembering people who are past. And, um, and yeah, thinking, I mean, it's interesting because you, you move through a period of deep sadness about it. And then I think part of what is healing is to um, allow for, for um, 
thinking about all the things that made you laugh about that person or a particular time that mm-hmm. was funny or of a good memory. Those are that's a part of what makes it easy to have to have some nostalgia for a time past or a person that's gone um, without it being, uh, you know, openly like gut wrenchingly painful all the time. It's bittersweet. I think fondly about showbiz pizza, which is now yes. Chuck E. Cheese. Oh. And when you'd have your birthday there, <laughs> mm-hmm. they'd give you a small cake, which never fed enough people in your group, but it was a white cake with white non-dairy whipped topping. And then plunked in the middle of it was a giant emblem of Billy Bob, who played, it was a gorilla that played, no, no, it was, it was, it they, was Billy Bob the bear. He was yeah, a bear, and yeah. he didn't, uh, he played like the guitar. Because they repurposed him into the purple character, I think. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but it was a giant, it was just a giant piece of sugar that right. had like a screen print right. on it. And I remember that was the coolest thing ever. Is you, and we're talking, this thing had to have been three or four inches tall. And if you lived in Fargo at that time as a kid, I mean, that was the closest to Disneyland we had around here, right? Like there's mm-hmm. just games everywhere and you get pizza and there's animatronic characters and and a big They're mouse comes doing out. Doing a Beatles cover. Yeah. Oh man. And my uh... parents can get beer. But recent, <laughs> recently I went back to Chuck E. Cheese. Now, given they've had some changes over the years, but I thought to myself, I spent hours here as a kid. I can't spend five more minutes here. Oh, no, and it's s- terrible as an adult. We used to just yeah. like want to pull our eyes out. And that's part of nostalgia, right? Is you mm. think it's awesome, but really when you're pressed to it, it's not. Here's something that yeah. is awesome. <laughs> True. The Ghostbusters uh, Ecto Cooler, when they re-released <laughs> that two years ago, that was awesome. That was really great because now I could mix it with vodka as an adult, and that was sweet. But I'm digging that Surge is back right now. I yeah. love I love Surge. That 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 takes me back to sixth grade. Every time I see that Surge cannon, that it hasn't really even changed, and I'm like, oh my god, Mrs. Lisko's class. I was really excited this week when I found a Sierra Mist. Really? Ooh, I did. I did wow. with real sugar. I bought mm. that baby. <laughs> I don't even drink pop, and I was like, "Gotta have it." <laughs> and, but there are also things that they had their time, and you don't really need oh, them anymore. Even though you think goodness, you'd yeah. love to have them back, you really no, don't. no, no, like, no, no. Like Republicans, I, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do miss them. Um, no, I, I, uh, I, I was reminded just recently of that notion of, um, particularly with relationships. You know, you. you so, yeah, so that guy's single again and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, would you want to go back to that? No, because then I I don't get to apply. Jenny Lou Rusi said this, and God bless her for it. It was a fabulous quote. She said, because um, no, even if I got back together with someone who was an ex, it's not like I get to apply the lessons I learned from that ex now to that relationship with that person. Mm. I've applied the relationship lessons to all the relationships since then. And going back, it would just be hell for both of us. And I thought, that's brilliant. Just like as a life lesson, when you think about all the, you know, anything that goes bad, what are the lessons you take from it? How do you apply them right. from there on? You can't go back. I was I was, I was, was in a relationship once that lasted about a year, and then we broke up, and then a year later, we got back together again. Only time I've ever done it. And the lesson, I, the biggest lesson I got out of there was that... Um, uh, it doesn't matter if you think someone has changed necessarily, but also <laughs> that that thing called new relationship energy is not there. 
And uh. trying to start a romantic relationship without that in the beginning kind of handicaps you right away. Like you get past all the good stuff immediately yeah. and go straight to the bad again. So I, I mean, you never <laughs> want to say never. Who knows what the rest of your life is like? Right. But that was definitely a big lesson for me. I've, I've never quite understood that. I mean, even when I was younger and like dating, I never quite understood the dating someone, breaking up and getting back together thing. It just never made sense to me. But maybe it was because I'm, I'm kind of too all in, you mm. know, and then you get your heart broken and you're like, no, you really can't go back. But at least you found a winner like David. I did. <laughs> <laughs> He's fantastic. He is fantastic. <laughs> so where'd you meet David? We He's the most cultured alpha male you'll ever meet, I think. Uh, He's a very cultured <laughs> alpha male. It's, it's weird. It's so funny it's because like, when I first met, I mean, he is. He's a renaissance guy, right? Right. Absolutely. Um, and and when I first met him, he was uh, a theater guy who then I discovered, like, at the heart, he's really a mountain man, right? <laughs> and so it's always been sort of squaring those two parts of his personality. Um, the theater thing uh, really took off because, that you know, <laughs> frankly, once we met, he was like, well, I guess I won't go be a park ranger. So, so meeting you I'll got him into theater. a theater professor. No, he was already in theater. We oh, met okay. at... We met at um, we met a theater in the round in Minneapolis doing a show. So I was doing props and he was in the show. So I'm backstage mixing alcohol of varying colors and he comes in the door and, um, anyway, you know, so it, it, opening night party, I was a little too drunk to drive home. And so he invited me to stay and he was a complete gentleman, which was fabulous. Like we joke now that we knew about consent back in the eighties before that was a thing, right? Like, cause he was actually really gentlemanly, which is, I think to me, that seemed key for this being a long-term thing and not right. a short-term thing. Um, and, uh, but he was working seasonal. So he was in the city, uh, during the season doing theater, but in the summer he was in the mountains and he was waiting tables um, because that's what you do in a resort, you know, and then you climb stuff on your day off. And that was a completely new way of living to me. I had no idea. Um, but the relationship was successful enough after a few months that I went with him to the Grand Tetons that summer. Um, and so I, I did everything from cleaning hotel rooms to working in the kitchen to finally getting to work at the front desk um, at this lovely resort in the Grand Tetons. And after that was when we both figured out that this was a thing and um, or during that. And so then it was like, well, are we both going to just keep following each other back and forth through various uh, iterations of seasonal work or, or what? And so he decided to go get his master's and he was in his master's program when I said to myself, that looks kind of cool. Maybe I'll go get my master's. And and then we were apart for a while because our schools were not in the same place. But it, that was part of his path was figuring out that he could he could more readily actually make a career out of his theater avocation than he could out of his climbing avocation. Um, and so for a while, he really worked on cultivating that the academic and um, and culture parts of his interest. And so when we moved to Fargo for him to, uh, Moorhead, for him to take the job at Concordia, it was a few years. And then he started to go to the lake and he started to hunt. And then he wanted to get a motorcycle. And now we've got three. And I always joked about how I didn't, I couldn't figure out how, you know, theater academic guy had become hunter motorhead guy. And then I reminded myself that, oh, actually, he was always a Renaissance guy. It was just sort of which thing does he get to spend his 
you know, disposable money and time on at this moment. And here in here in Fargo Moorhead, motorcycles. Do you ever uh, <laughs> do you ever wake up in the middle of the night and he's not on his side of the bed? You go to the window and you look in the backyard. The full moon is is casting a light and there's just David staring up at the moon. No, it would be much more likely for him to have that experience of waking up in the night yeah. and I'm not there and he's like Where? doing moon salutations. I can yes, see you doing absolutely. that. Absolutely, I can yep. see you doing that. It's it's uh it's now uh, I've learned the yeah. secret of of women of a certain age that. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, it's it's all the women of a certain age all over the world just having a nightly confab, um, mm. you know, some meditation. That's and... far better than men of a certain age. Yeah. Who, uh, <laughs> who just walk around naked in locker rooms and uh, <laughs> yep. and just assume that because you also have that white chromosome that you'll love this joke they're about to tell you in public in front of a bunch of people. Buck naked, too. <laughs> yeah, buck naked. Yeah, well, you know. In women's um, locker rooms, we just all get over it. You know, we. <laughs> we had, I, I am okay. Not with us the millennials. Jokes. We're I'm, we're ashamed. Well, yeah, and, and that's, Ooh, no, a sense of shame. Oh man, especially uh, the men. <laughs> that's one of those things. Growing up in a big family uh, with not very many bathrooms, uh, I was already prepped for being backstage in theater. <laughs> right? It was like, oh, I have a quick change. There it's, it goes. It's not the nudity of the old men. It's the aggressive nudity <laughs> of the old men. It's it's the, yes. hey, let's have a conversation with my leg up on this bench oh, two feet from you while you're tying your shoes and sitting no, down. It's, no. it's the fact that it's not required nudity. Yeah. It's they're not actively changing. They just took off their clothes, and now they're wandering Nothing about else has for a happened yet. Oh. That's yeah. why they're still naked. And hey, buddy, put a towel under that right. when you sit down. Put a towel under that. Mm-hmm. In fact, put five towels under that and five more on top of it, please. Uh, no, women seem to be a little bit more respectful of that, at least the women I've encountered in the in the locker room. A few years ago, we had an opportunity with my comedy troupe to perform at a clothing-optional soiree. And I said, well, what, do you expect us to be so, uh, Which option do you expect us to take? And they said, it's completely up to you guys. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And so you could be clothed if you want. You don't have to wear clothes. That's the whole point of clothing optional. And I weighed it with the rest of the troop. And I said, okay, do we want to do this? And everyone, I need you to sign some kind of a waiver that says I'm not forcing you into a situation that you uh-huh. would feel uncomfortable with. And we ultimately decided not to do it, and not because we're we're prudes, but because we found out they weren't going to pay mileage. Oh. <laughs> and that was the thing. I was like, oh, well, forget that then. <laughs> this is and this is way this is down in Missouri, so I wasn't wow. gonna I wasn't gonna foot the bill for that one. You going to a clothing optional thing sounds like an interesting life experience. I would love to go to one, but I if as long as it's optional, because. I would definitely remain clothed. You would rec- no matter exercise what. your option to Absolutely. wear clothing, one hundred percent. But if I'm given like the choice to, hey, do you want to go here? And people are just going to be naked. I'd be like, never done that before. Okay. I'm going to try that once, and then I can like write about it at some point. Right. But it's going to be different than all the YouTube videos I'm probably going to watch tonight. At right. Home. That, yeah. David. David's experience of talking about European beaches. He was like, well, you know, at first you're like, oh wow, look, and then you're like, oh wow, oh wait, okay, oh yeah, everybody's got a body. And they're not all, you know, sort right. of what we're supposed to think of as like supermodel. Bo- okay, they're just bodies. Yeah. Pretty quickly, it's those, just like it's just the European that's beaches. Just like swimsuits, right? Definitely it's just seem bodies. like the locker rooms at the YMCA for dudes, though. Like I see video <laughs> of, and it's just this old guys just like, yep. Take yep. a look. There it is. <laughs> there it is. You're welcome. Soak it in. 
Uh, when I was 16, I went on a, a Europe trip with school with the French students from South High, a couple from North High, some Latin kids, Dr. D- or D- or David Volk's class. Yeah, yeah. so ancient and, Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, not some so, Latin kids. Yeah, no. Yeah, no, <laughs> Cha-cha. Not, no, that, not that. Okay, and we snuck away to a nude beach in Cannes when we were there, and mm-hmm. we thought we were going to be so cool. And then we we're like, oh, my God, it's a bunch of people that look like our grandparents. <laughs> yeah. And then it became cool because they came up. We're the youngest people there, so people started engaging us in conversation. And that's where I had the best French, like my French came to the front of my mind immediately, and I was able to, you know, pomme de terre, potato. I was on it. I knew what we were talking about, and I did talk about potatoes at length on a nude beach. Come to think of it, were they were they comparing me to a potato you or a you. potato? <laughs> to a en pomme de terre. Um, so let's talk. Let's talk about this. So, Theater B, your founding yeah. member, super yeah. passionate about that. Congratulations. You guys have had a lot of shows over a great What season are we right now? 16? 16. We're on season 16 right now. And we also, why don't you tell us, we have this really cool holiday show coming up pretty soon (laughs) that is of interest to the people at this table. That's a nice little softball there, Tucker. Yeah. (laughs) See how he did that? It took us four hours to write that yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm super excited. Uh, This is uh, one of the only repeats we've ever done um, in our work, which is kind of fun. Um, But yes, we're going to bring back to the Fargo-Moorhead area at the holidays, uh, David Sedaris's The Santa Land Diaries, Yay. starring yours truly, me, JJ, JJ Gordon, awesome. and directed by Tucker Lucas, me. which is really also very exciting, because yeah. that's, a, that's a huge part of what we were hoping um, that Theater B would do in the community, would be a place where um, younger artists have a chance to kind of take on greater responsibility with a lot of peer support so um so they could you know try different aspects of the discipline and figure out what they like and grow as artists both tucker and i are directing this season Mm -hmm. and it's partly because we co-directed something last year with a lot of guidance and felt like yep i can i can take on a main stage show and shepherd it and hopefully it won't tank and you know, um, right. kind of have an understanding of what are the resources I need to be successful at that. So it's kind of, it's interesting to be there after 16 years. People have asked me, they're like, you don't usually direct, do you? I said, no. <laughs> have you ever done it before? And I, well, yeah, I think I've done it about three times in the 40 years that I've been at this. Whoa. So this is, this is a big, this is a big step then. Directing it's is huge. yeah, it is huge. It's not it's not it's the, fun though. Yeah, it's not the first um, sort of thing that comes comfortably to me. I don't read scripts with uh, a director's eye usually. Um, occasionally it happens, and then I kind of feel pretty attracted to a script. Um, and then um, it's also not where I specifically have my training. So a lot of <laughs> a lot of what I've learned about directing, I've learned by being directed. That's huge, though. Yeah. in my opinion. I yeah. mean. Because we've all, you know, if you've been in even more than four plays in your life, you've probably had at least one director who just didn't know how to talk to actors. They had no acting experience themselves or whatever. And so it it, it definitely, if, if you are someone who can direct after having been on the receiving end of it for so long, that's, that's, that's definitely a boon. Yeah. I had a director who believed in what he called organic blocking, 
which is, I think, just him being too lazy to write anything down. <laughs> So it was a no, lot of, that's actually a thing, JJ. Not the way he was doing it. <laughs> he was just like, well, walk where you think you, need sh- you should walk right now. And I'd be like, well, I should probably be over by the piano. Okay. Yeah. So I'd walk over to the piano. <laughs> Almost every night, the show was just a little bit different than it was yeah. the night before. It was also a, a murder mystery uh, piece. Oh. And the set was built by the underclassmen who just did not give a shit. <laughs> and so the set was falling apart. I remember painting up until they opened the doors yeah. for the audience. Uh, that, but it was pretty much the most fun I've ever had in a show, though, because say, the cast had to bond really, really well. <laughs> there is something about going through like a nightmare theater production oh, that yes. is both painful but incredibly uh, educational, yeah, and therefore rewarding. Well, yeah, in its I own mean, way. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, hardship is definitely a very bonding experience. It's it's that. It's that army thing. But like right? that feeling you know? like halfway through rehearsal, once you know the play is probably bad, like it, certain shows, it always depends, right? Every show oh is God. its own case. But there are moments where you're like, yep, there's a very high probability this isn't going to come together well. I, and then knowing that you have to go on stage and perform yeah. it anyways. I did a summer stock once, so really, really compressed rehearsal period where I was a cook in a restaurant and the timing was that people at tables out in the restaurant are talking, there are some of the scenes, and then the lights switch and you're in the kitchen and the, the cook is talking with her husband who's also the server. And so it was incredibly uh, choreographed in terms of what I'm actually cooking, first of all, actually cooking with heat. <laughs> Sharp knives. Um, we did manage finally to convince the director that the people on stage should not eat anything that I cooked <laughs> on stage during the show. That we couldn't actually be sure that it would this be. This chicken is raw. Exactly. Um, but they did have to eat. And, uh, yeah, just the, and, just the oh cast members just getting explosive and, diarrhea oh, every night. It was just <laughs> horrid. And, and our director, God bless her, she just, she would just want to tell stories of theater in Minneapolis and then tell us to just make the magic and we were like no 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 no! we got seven days we have seven days with this incredibly complex script shut the hell up and let us rehearse it was crazy i yeah bad experience in in summer stuff but (laughs) aren't those bad experiences the things you really learn from most absolutely we don't do that at at theater b we don't cook food on stage and then make people eat well yes yeah we've done that we we, but that was okay like i mean but that was making sure we had all the right people doing all the right, right stuff so that when, you know, when Lori is cooking pesto on stage, Matthew, bless him, had actually made the pesto that would be served to Carrie. Always, whenever whenever we've had food, even if we're not preparing it, food in theater is definitely, first it's costly because if it's being consumed on stage, you have to buy new stuff. Yep. And then you have to store it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it's a certain kind of perishable, that means you can only get it so early before that actual show that you're using it. Right. And uh, it's just a huge pain. And it, so, it, it like, is. anytime and we're doing, uh, like, our season selection, we have to be like, <laughs> all right, how many shows want lots of food? Because if right. they all want it, then something's getting cut. No, and this is where this is where those relationships make such a huge difference. I mean, when I think about things like uh, God of Carnage, for example, where we needed to to have uh, at least two suits, but maybe more because it was going to get vomited on every night. Right. So it had to be dry cleaned before the next night's right. show. Yep. So it was
clothes, the suits, the dry cleaning, the stuff that's getting thrown up, uh, a clawfu tea that had to be eaten every night. Which was actually kuchen, but it was delicious. It and was delicious. I got to eat two slices every show. So that was my dinner, but it was delicious. We had to destroy a beautiful bouquet of fresh flowers every night. Every night. Uh, I mean, just it was incredible the amount of, of stuff that we went through in that show. Um so yeah, having those partners in town who are like, yeah, I'll make you a kuchen. Yes, I'll make you two pies. <laughs> Available for every Available night. For every God, now night I want more of that kuchen now. Just the memory know, of it coming back. And I'm like, ooh, that was You're really good. Nostalgic, it was really Tucker. Good. Really good. That oh, pain. Oh, man. I miss it. I miss the the wound. That was the last show I acted in. That was 2013. Yeah, I think it was 2013. Sounds so right. uh, five years. Mm-hmm. So I really want to get into a show again, but. At the same time, directing is a lot of fun. Yeah. It is a lot of fun. Yeah. Especially if you like to just show up wearing whatever you want and you're not <laughs> worrying about memorizing lines. And people just think you're the expert in the they room just, all yeah, of a sudden. You get to it's the it's the only time in my life where I speak and they have to listen. <laughs> right. <laughs> like that's the only only time I really get that privilege. Yeah. Uh so Theater B is a nonprofit. Oh yes. And so that brings a whole other herd of cats that need to get involved with the whole thing. Yeah, it does. Did you have previous experience in fundraising or putting <laughs> grants together, things like this? No. No. Yeah. Well, how was that no. as far as an education, oh huh? Oh, my gosh. I know. It's like I've been at this for 16 years since we just, you know, since we started it when it was like, we just want to do a play. Um and so over those years, I really have now had probably the equivalent of an MBA and an, uh, a master's in arts administration. Um, and I haven't had some, I've had some of the formal fundraising training, but not all of it. I'm not a certified fundraiser, for example. That's a thing you can do. Um but uh, I have gotten, I have to say, this is one of those areas where my Catholic upbringing and those those nuns <laughs> was really helpful. I'm a good grant writer, um, and it's because I figured out how to answer the questions. You know, when the questions are laid out there, <laughs> then you just answer them as best you can. And um, and I, I know so deeply all of the stuff that we're doing at Theater B and why we're doing it, the kind of change we're hoping to make. So I can usually make that case in a written format pretty well. Um, It's the face-to-face stuff that is really nerve-wracking for me. I have lots and lots of friends. I have lots of people in the community who support the theater. It's really hard for me to just actually ask. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You go go out to lunch and you're like, do I... Make the ask during the soup, or do I wait until the end? Right. Any t- anytime you're just asking for someone's generosity, it's I think it's it's it is. tough. I also think too that when, especially if you if so, if you're someone who hasn't really thought about what it takes to do grant writing, on the surface it might just sound like you're answering questions and writing a letter and 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 responding, but. You know, imagine you're a carpenter who learns how to make a chair in the state of North Dakota, and then you go to the state of Minnesota, and you find out you actually can't make a chair the same way in that state, <laughs> <No>. right? <laughs> like, it'd be, oh, wait, wait, excuse me, what? <laughs> so, uh, you know, like, yeah. we're now in Minnesota. Yes. Um, and, like, you know, going from North Dakota to Minnesota, um, it's it just, it's a whole bucket of new, like, oh, that's a new thing I didn't know about. That's a new thing. And, and I am... Uh, you can talk about nostalgia. I'm actually feeling a little bit nostalgic for being 
in North Dakota. I was actually just at a theater conference. The Minnesota Theater Alliance has a statewide theater conference. So it was, um, uh, and there are 450 theaters in Minnesota, by the way. Um, But there were, uh, you know, a bunch of them represented at this conference. And uh, one of the keynote speakers was actually uh, Greg Reiner, who used to be in the Tectonic Theater Company. And um, he is now at the NEA. He's uh, the director of the theater and musical theater uh, granting programs. And when he showed uh, the map of the United States and the fact that NEA funding for theater and musical theater goes to all but five states in the entire union, and there's North Dakota that doesn't isn't colored in right there smack in the middle of the continent, it just hurt my heart a little bit that um, there aren't more theater companies in in the state um, who are at whatever sort of uh, level one needs to be at, either administratively or in terms of budget size or in terms of planning and that capacity that it takes um, to be receiving funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. Um, the NEA is still funding North Dakota through the North Dakota Council on the Arts, but uh, partly because that application is easier to make. But it just it kind of hurt my heart a little bit that just a few years ago we actually did have NEA funding and we were the professional theater year-round theater in North Dakota. That was it, right? Um, was us. And I do feel a little bit bad that we are now on the Minnesota side of the river for that. There's some there's a novelty that made it important for us to be in Fargo. When I was in Chicago, I was amazed at all the places that had been repurposed into a theater space, whether it was for improv or, uh, you know, a Shakespeare piece, it doesn't matter. Anything yeah. where, it, as long as long as it had nine chairs and, <laughs> right. and like a paint light, it yep. was a theater. Mm-hmm. But the last time I went back, they have all but dried up from what I remember, at least in the sheer volume of them. And people told me it's just a sign of the times. And it's not that people don't want to create. It's not that people don't want to go out there. But it's you can't just walk into a space and make it a theater anymore. People are cognizant of you need liability insurance and liability insurance costs a lot of money. And if you don't know if you're going to even get 10 people to see this performance, right. can you you know belly that up? Um, even just the amount of property that's not owned by an individual anymore, but actually owned by a corporation. So they can't just grant you the rights to be able to come in and use it. Um, nobody seems to have metal folding chairs anymore either, which is uh, yeah, <laughs> no, another you issue. Have to, you have to be a member of a church yeah. to borrow those folding mm-hmm. chairs, but you have to bring them back you know, right. every Sunday morning. It's, it's so. insanely difficult to commodify theater and to produce it at scale. Yeah, It's not like a film where you have this product and then you do all this other stuff with it, right? Like it's a finite amount of time happening in real time. And mm-hmm. once it's done, it's done. And you're limited by... How many people you can fit into the house, and how long you can you can actually run it for, and then the market that you are in, and so right. how uh, much can you actually charge for a ticket? Nowhere right. near what it costs, because live theater is a human intensive art form. It takes a lot of people to produce, and so it's it's not like. Uh, it's not like a bank where if you can't afford a teller, you can put in a cash machine and people can go get their own money or deposit their own checks. But a theater experience 
is it can't ever be scaled down that way. There is no way to to make AI do all the work of artists Yet. in that in that yes Yet. in that uh, realm. <laughs> so it is inherently expensive. Do you find you spend a lot of time convincing people why their donation dollars should go towards uh, theater or the arts in general? Uh, I think that there's a lot of groups that just get money because people understand what they're doing and, oh, yeah, of course, you know, we need this, so we'll go there. But I feel like I, when I listen to the pitch that arts folks give, it's sort of like, listen, you don't know how important this is mm -hmm. and I'm not asking for that much compared to what you're giving to a sports team to be able to have a jet uh, at your college. Right. Um, oh yeah, but no, it's way out of whack. Wouldn't it be nice if we could change like that dialogue? <laughs> I do. I, I, yes. Oh gosh, yes. I wish. Um, there's several things that I think about when when I run up against this the sort of the making the case. Um, there's the small like ripple effect piece, right? That sometimes people actually need to see um, the what kind of effect the artwork is having uh, in community, and for some people. Uh, that notion of um, the economic impact is one that that speaks to them. Um, for other people, it's, yeah, you know, being involved in theater has really made it possible for my son or daughter to to get through high school uh, um, and that kind of thing, right? So that more personal impact. Um, and I really struggle because there's a part of me that thinks that in general, in a, in a larger scale, we simply take for granted so much of what creative people produce. Um, I, there's a part of me that's wondered if we could ever uh, manage to do a single day in this country where we call it the creativity strike. Oh, sure. That's a great idea. And you turn on your radio and nothing happens. There is no music that will come out. You turn on your computer and there will be no logos, there will be no color, there will be no, you can't go to the library, no books are available, the bookstores are closed, writers had to, you know, I mean, I think about the kind of investment that writers make, never knowing if they're ever going to get paid for their work, holy buckets, right? I, that's just, so we have this sense that the work is going to be there and that artists just can't help but create, they just want to do it, it's such a passion, they have to, and they're willing to starve until someone discovers them and finally pays them for all of the work. And I just, that, to me, that model is so screwed up, I I just want to say, no, 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 no. Really, sometimes you have to foster a lot of mediocre artists because you never know when someone's going to write the next Hamilton, right? If he hadn't written Hamilton, we would all go, In the Heights is okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? But instead... And that's, Lynn... in fact, the critique it got. Yep. It was okay. It was an okay musical. It's nice that some young people are still writing musicals. Right? No, now Hamilton as an entity uh, needed its own tax code like Disney. But it doesn't get there without investors going, that is a crazy frickin' idea. Um, but okay, yes, take five years and uh, all these amazingly talented people um, and we will produce it. We will pay all of you to spend your time doing a thing that is freaking crazy. And we don't know at all what the outcome will be. We need people to just be a lot more daring that way and be willing to fund fund the unknown and the mediocre because someday it might be great. Or 
even the mediocre is going to have value to somebody. Oh, and I think we, we're also missing an aspect from my grandfather's generation, which is you did this because you were a part of this community, and <laughs> if you had good fortune, you part of that was spending spending that money back into the community without expecting your name to be to across be something. something Correct. Or to, you know, gosh, your kid needs an internship, and so he's going to get it with you so that he can just write off the hours at the end of the summer. And so much is tied up in that kind of BS that it's it ruins a certain aspect. I think of people like um, like Ruth Landfield, yeah, who was a pioneer for the arts in the Fargo Moorhead community. Yeah, and how many how many times do you go to the Ruth Landfield School of Dance, the Ruth Landfield uh, Auditorium? You don't because she was just a woman who knew what needed to be done. Right. Yes. You know, and also that when you theater the reason theater still exists is because people care about it right yeah because it doesn't just on its own just through ticket sales pay for itself in general oh goodness just no. doesn't no right so it's it's you know that and many other art forms they still exist because people find intrinsic value there right they they that that's not measured necessarily in dollars and cents right but in in culture and life and, and literacy and education and i think it's i mean to me it seems as though the arts really are um it's cellular right <laughs> like we we have evolved as a species sharing culture story information um through uh, some of these you know these storytelling techniques, right? And music and poetry, the, you know, epic poems and uh, things like that. And it's just built into us, I think, as human beings. Um, and even not even as human beings. There are animals that make art. I know this. Um, and so I, I just, there is something about it that it, it, it is something that communicates across cultures, across languages, across ages, across um, all kinds of cultural or political experience. Humans um, have been telling stories to each other since we learned how to make fire. Exactly. And, and that's, that's how we, that's how you teach, really. I mean, for so long, it was, it was purely about teaching. Right. Um, and then it became about entertainment. And, uh, to me, I, I just think, yeah, the theater, the live theater experience, um, it's just, it's so rich when you're sitting there, you know, breathing the same air together. Mm -hmm. um, and these, the the conventions that we just take for granted, that when we all walk into the room, uh, we're going to watch a thing on stage and we're all going to pretend that that we're, you know, just looking through the window at that thing that's happening on, well, <laughs> Well, it's absurd, uh, really, if, but if, we do it. We, you, we do, and you, we love it. I've never thought of an episode of NCIS that made me jump to my feet during the credits and applaud. Right, yeah, right. Nope. But that happens all the time when I go see live theater. It doesn't happen every time. I buck the trend that we have in Fargo-Moorhead, which yeah, is Fargo everything Moorhead, deserves a, a standing yeah. ovation. But, but, yeah. um, even if you're a fan of just good acting, right? Like, let's say you're like, hey, I'm not into theater, but yeah, I like these movies and I like the actors in them and I like the job they're doing. So if you are someone who feels like you can appreciate good acting on some level, you should see good acting on stage. Well, it's far more impressive, I think, because so much more powerful. you're seeing something rendered in real time and there are no retakes, right? You're you're watching one to two months of that 
actor showing up every day and doing this over and over again, mm-hmm. and you're 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 watching something far more immediate. That someone who's not getting breaks that has to right. give you the beginning, middle, and end of a character in front of you in in ninety minutes to two hours. Yeah, mm-hmm. the couple of times I've done film, I find that I'm not comfortable with it because I really like having an audience. An audience teaches me so much as a performer about what works, what doesn't, um, what's important at a at a given moment. Um, being able to really be in a moment with another actor. Um, with that other character and and learning from them. Oh, that's just, it's electric. And I think there's something, we can feel it. It is electric. It's real when it's in that format as opposed to film or TV. And having a live audience changes performance. I remember in Hand of God, you would know within the first 10 minutes what kind of an audience that we had based on which jokes they laughed at in the opening. And we're like, okay, this is one of those more like downtrodden audiences who are really going to benefit from the third act and they're going to really get into it. Or this is a group that they're people, they're here, they're probably a little liquored up, they're ready to have a good time. Uh, (laughs) I find that to be so amazing and how it changes the performance of the actors. And it it shouldn't, but it does. That electricity gets you more excited and so you maybe give a little extra on one night or maybe because of the audience's energy you pull things back a little bit and you find some emotions that you didn't previously find because you can hear someone crying Mm -hmm. you know watching a performance um no it is reciprocal and it should be it's yeah it is amazing it's a it's an honor to get to do it actually shared experiences Again, with technology, we're getting so far away from shared experiences that they're really important. I like waiting in line. So <laughs> I find I get to meet new people when I'm waiting in line. Mm-hmm. I get to kind of find out, you know, how, what's the feel of the room while yeah, I'm here. I'm one of those people. Well, like, you know, I can't go into the grocery store without talking to people. But I do. I wait in line and I do not take out my device and look at it. I, I'm looking around the room scanning because I'm so used to running into people I know and I being do. able to have a conversation. People are animals. <laughs> yeah, I do. I've seen Tucker put his hood up and it's like 75 degrees out. Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> um, oh, that's his I don't want to talk to people thing. Yeah, right. Like, I'm, uh, I'm grumpy I'm right now. I'm done with you. <laughs> um, or I'm just super white and it's a big sun out right now and i got to put something on my bald super white head. <laughs> that's actually a large part of it. Mm-hmm. That's why I, I have made you this sombrero as a gift. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think you'll I'm going to add it to my sombrero collection. Yeah, I, I learned it from those Latin kids I went to Europe with. Uh, and here we are back at hats. Right? Yeah. Oh, snap. I didn't even know that that was going to happen. That was so organic. Um, so what other why, – why do you stay in Fargo-Moorhead? Huh. That is I a mean, good question, JJ. I, th- I, think, I think it is because, you so know – Before you keep going, I just, just – you know, I have to leave – Okay, we'll we'll wrap it up here. So Fargo Moorhead is a, a relatively small pond. Uh, yes, and you and David are both big fish. Yep, uh, your kids are even big fish. <laughs> Incredibly talented children. So why Fargo Moorhead? Uh well, that changes uh, over time. I've discovered. Um, so 
uh, we originally came here um, for the job at Concordia, and actually not because we weren't happy where we were. Uh, we were both teaching at the highest altitude four-year college in the country. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we often, you know, for, well, still, even now we joke about why did we leave the mountains? Um, but, uh, it was because when my parents came to visit us, uh, when Cameron was a toddler, they both needed oxygen the entire week that they stayed with us. (laughs) So we both looked at each other and said, this is probably not a long-term thing if we want our parents to have a relationship with our children. And so uh, when a job came up that was in the Midwest, um, his parents were in Mankato, mine were in the Twin Cities, and so we came back to the Midwest. And then we started Theater B, and that really deepened our roots here. Um, I, I am very attached to this community, mostly because of the theater. Um, and um, I, you know, we do now talk about succession planning because, once again, we're at a different stage of our lives, and... Um, you know, our kids don't even live in our house anymore. Um, watch those kids grow up. It's so weird to talk to them as adults now. (laughs) I'm just like, no, (laughs) no. Yeah. But they're going to go out and Linka is going to, you know, change the world. Linka is going to be president. (laughs) I say this a lot. Like, and I keep saying, no, she's going to be surgeon general or or Um, she's going to be, she's going to (laughs) be the leader of whatever is left over after the singularity and and the world goes to shit. And then it'd be like, we need a leader who can guide us through this publicist because he's, you know, he's going to be great. He's such a charismatic guy, too. Um, By the way, the elevation of Fargo his... is 904 feet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just don't know what his path is yet, but he's a very engaging and intelligent young man. So, um, But Linka seems to have her path, path planned, which is fascinating. Um, anyway, these two kids. But um, So now we do. We kind of wonder about what might be next um, and how do we make sure that the, frankly, that the theater gets to a point where it feels stable enough that if we wanted to retire, we could. Because um, that's, I think, to me, that's one of those biggest threats for a young organization um, or a founder-led organization, which ours still is, uh, that sense of how do you plan for what's next? Because we would like it to live past us. We would like for Theater B to be here in this community um, for a long, long time and uh, continue to grow and and be just like the coolest thing and be a destination and a draw um, for people to the region. Um, and I don't know if it can do that under my leadership. Sometimes I think, no, 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 no. It really needs somebody who knows more than I do. Cause everything I know about running the nonprofit, I learned from running this nonprofit. So at some point I'm going to reach a ceiling and, and maybe somebody else could come and, you know, sort of breathe new life. We just into need to it. add more people to our circus tent. Yeah. Right. Maybe yeah. there's some young people listening to this right now. And uh, they're going to go online and they're going to find Theater B and they're going to rearrange the furniture of their mind and all sorts of cool <laughs> stuff like that. Carrie Winterstein, thank you so much for being a guest. It's a delight. I've, I've been wanting to fit this in for a long time. So thank you so and much. Thank you for bringing us candy as you well. You are welcome. My insulin levels appreciate it. All right. Thank you. JJ Meets World. That's going to wrap it up for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode of JJ Meets World and would like to help us continue to produce two new episodes every week, you can donate to our Patreon. Check out patreon.com slash JJ Meets World and donate today. Even as little as a dollar a month can go a long way. Visit our website at www.jjmeetsworld.com or hit up our social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the sites the kids are using these days. 
If you'd like to stay up to date on new episodes of JJ Meets World, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, YouTube, or wherever you consume the podcast that you love. JJ Meets World is produced every week by Tucker Lucas. You can find out more about Tucker's work by checking out www.moonbasemaria.com. If you want to get in touch with your host with the most, go to linebenders.com and you can find direct contact info for JJ. My baloney has a first name, it's T-U-C-K-E-R. My baloney has a second name, it's also T-U-C-K-E-R. My baloney has a third name because it recently got married, then it's T-U-C-K-E-R. Tucker loves baloney. Baloney loves Tucker. Tucker.